Hi, everyone. This is Christian Kuhn. Before I get into this episode, I want to lift up a couple things. First, this is a rerun, a rebroadcast of a conversation I had with the author Lisa Sharon Harper in April of 2018. It's certainly worth sharing again, so I hope you enjoy that. Second, wanted to let you know that I have created a new Patreon account. For those who don't know, Patreon is a way for people to financially support people who are producing various kinds of content, including podcasts. And so if you would go to patreon.com slash failingboldly, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash failingboldly, and think about supporting this financially, I'm really doing this mainly to see if I can perhaps start producing this more than twice a month. And to do so, I would need to hire a producer to help me out with that. And so anything, even like a dollar a month, is really helpful. So if you like this podcast and would think about maybe uh, supporting it and maybe want it to come out more than just twice a month, that would be great. I've got some really great episodes coming up, including conversations with uh, Liz Lenz, who's the author of Godland, Story of Faith, Loss, and Renewal in Middle America. To celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Urban Village, I'm bringing on Trey Hall, the co-founder of that church, with me, and we're going to do some reflecting on uh, the launch of that ch- of our church. And then also author and activist Shane Claiborne, author of books such as The Irresistible Revolution and Jesus for President, is also going to be an episode in the future. So be ready for that. And again, thanks for considering supporting this via Patreon. And uh, even if you don't, I'm grateful for your listening. So here is the conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper. Hello, and welcome to Failing Boldly a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm Kristen Kuhn, author of the book Feeling Boldly and pastor of Urban Village Church in Chicago. My guest for this week's podcast is Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa is a prolific speaker, writer, and activist, and is the founder and president of FreedomRoad.us, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by convening forums and experiences that bring commonalities toward a just world. Lisa is the author of several books, including The Very Good Gospel, which was recognized as the 2016 Book of the Year by Englewood Review of Books. The book explores God's intent for the wholeness of all relationships in light of today's headlines. This was a very open and honest conversation, and Lisa shares her thoughts on numerous topics, including the nature of Shalom, her growing up in the conservative evangelical world, the 2016 election, and many other topics. I think I can safely say that when you're done listening, you won't ask yourself, what does Lisa really think? I hope you enjoy it. Well, Lisa Sharon Harper, thank you so much for joining me on the Failing Boldly podcast. Christian Kuhn, it is so excited to be here. I am excited to be here, and it's it's uh, really a privilege. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Thank you. So your latest book is The Very Good Gospel. And so I was wondering if we could start there and just uh, ask a very general question. What spurred you to decide to, to write this book? Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I took a pilgrimage. Um, um, now it's 15 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> the time passes quickly, let me just say. Um, but 15 years ago, I took a pilgrimage through the American South, the Northern South, the Upper South, rather, and the Deep South. Um, we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears for the first two weeks and the African experience in America for the second two weeks. And the whole time we were asking, what does this have to do with the gospel? What does the gospel have to say to this? Um, and I know that for me, that was the that was really the red herring um, uh, question that was raised at the, at the end when I realized that I had no answer to that. My understanding of the gospel up to that point um, had been formed primarily through my my four years um, with with uh, a campus ministry called Crew, now called Crew at the time called Campus Crusade, and of course they had this little gold booklet called the Four Spiritual Laws, which they still use um, to this day. And the Four Laws, um, you know, they were very simple: God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. Um, but Jesus died to pay for the penalty of your sins, so all you need to do is pray this little prayer at the back of the gold booklet. And you get to go to heaven, right? So one summer, I, I went on my very my first summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I went on a summer project, summer missions project, 
And, um, and I converted or, you know, I had 25 people pray that prayer at the back of the gold booklet that summer. Wow. So I was really into the four spiritual laws, right? <laughs> like this was my thing. And, and actually in InterVarsity, the other Christian ministry that I was a part of um, at the time in 2003, um, I had been fighting, um, really fighting, particularly in, in LA for us to return to the four spiritual laws. But I got to the end of that summer and uh, I have to say, the laws were kind of mute. They had nothing to say. When I considered, you know, going up to my great, great, great grandmother, Leah Ballard, who was, who had 17 children. Um, and those 17 children, um, many of them she did not have by the end of the Civil War. She only had five by the time the Civil War was over. Um, you know, she had 17 children because she was most likely a breeder. She was her job was to breed money for her master. Hmm. Now, that meant that her job was to get raped on the daily. And her, she would get raped by the master. She would get raped by the master's friends or the overseers or by other, um, other enslaved men who were, who were forced to rape her daily. So I imagine going up to her at the end of a day, maybe after the fifth time she was raped that day, and ask and, and knocking on her door and saying, Great, 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 Grandmom Leah, I have great news for you, you know, and she telling me, um, okay, what is it? What is it? And she says, and I say to her, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. it just, it just totally fell flat. And my voice is cracking because I'm just getting over a, a flu slash cold and everything, but I feel it, it's, it sounds much worse than it actually is right now. Um, but let me just say that I got to that. I, I, I had that realization that that was going to fall flat with Leah. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, and keep it going. You know, it even gets worse. And you are sinful and therefore separated from God. The reason she's separated from God is because she is sinful. Can you believe that? <laughs> I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, come on now. Yeah. Uh, but all you need to do, <laughs> Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. All you need to do is trust that and then you get to go to heaven. Would that make Leah Ballard jump and shout? That would not be that good was news. That's what I was confronted with. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't. And so I, you know, literally, literally that that sent me in a tailspin for a whole year. I was like clinically depressed. Mm. Um, I never saw a therapist about it, but I, I just know I was depressed. I'd never been depressed before. Um, uh, but I had this cloud over me the whole year. I couldn't get joy around anything. And that's what happens when when you're ground shifts, right? When, when the ground moves underneath you. Um, and so I spent the next 13 years, um, going deep into that concept of Shalom, which is the theology, the biblical concept we were taught at the very beginning of the pilgrimage at the orientation, just trying to figure out what does this have to do with my own family's experience? What does it have to say? And what I found was that Shalom is simply what the kingdom of God looks like when you enter. It's what it smells like when you when you enter. It's what it requires of its citizens. And so all this time we've been talking, and in InterVarsity in particular at that time, um, the doctrine of the kingdom of God had kind of broken through and people were talking about, you need to invite your friends into the kingdom of God. But nobody ever said what the kingdom of God looked mm-hmm. like and what it smelled like and what it required. And what I found after 13 years of swimming in, in the biblical text, particularly in Genesis, and then, and then really all of the text after that, because I believe that the story starts there in Genesis 1 and, um, and then emanates out through, uh, through the prophets and through the histories that we get, the laws. It emanates out um, through the coming of the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus, into the world. Um, come to proclaim his kingdom and say, repent and draw near. And we have not understood what that repentance was for. We've thought, in fact, um, ironically, when when the scriptures got hold, were, were, were taken hold of by empire, they translated it as, oh, our personal sins. But isn't that convenient for them not to have to understand that their sin was actually in the desecration of the image of God on earth mm-hmm. by subjugating, mm-hmm. subjugating the image of God through empire, through conquering and colo- colonialism and imperialism and all of that. And, and Jesus was born into that context. It's that context that he's speaking to. 
when he talks about the imperial rule of Rome. Um, you know, everything that he says is spoken in that context to that context. So, so, you know, so after 13 years of swimming in Genesis and, and the rest of the text and looking at our history and, and our current events, and I've come to understand in a nutshell that the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God is the good news of the gospel. But what that means is that the king has come in order to protect and serve and cultivate the image of God on earth the image that the empires of men are hell bent hmm. on crushing. That would be good news yeah. to Leah. You, you mentioned Shalom earlier and the concept of Shalom plays a really big role in the book. And it, you mentioned, and also you were talking about uh, when you would take the little uh, tracks out for crew and give these to, to folks. And yeah. my sense of that is that it's a very individualistic thing. And I think sometimes when talking about mm -hmm. shalom, I think some folks have a general sense of what shalom is. They may use the word peace, for example. But I think often people will think about shalom, meaning how can I find peace for for me, for myself? And one of the things that you really do with this concept of shalom, I think, is expand it so much. This is, I'm going to read a brief sentence that you write in the book is, you say that the peace of self is sure. dependent on peace of the other. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about shalom, especially as um, as you describe it, much more than just an individual sense of peace, but it uh, encompasses or should encompass uh, the other too. Yeah, well, actually, thank you for bringing that out. Um, on At the end of Genesis 1 and Genesis one thirty one, God looks around at the, at the creation God had made and says, this is very good. And those words, very and good, are actually tov me'ot, tov being good and me'ot being very. And tov is a word that the Hebrews of the time understood, and the Hebrews today, understand to be about the space between things. You see, it was the Greeks that understood goodness or perfection to exist inside a thing. So their whole project was to make the perfect thing, to be the perfect person to find the perfect place, you know, to, to make a perfect chair or table or something like that, right? But the Hebrews didn't understand perfection till exist inside the singular thing. It wasn't individualistic. In fact, it was relational. In fact, um, very goodness, me'od, tov me'od, which is actually the closest thing that the Hebrews had to the idea of perfection at the time. Um, tov me'od was about the radical wellness of the relationships between things that God had created. So it is inherently relational. The, the thing God is focused on, is interested in, the thing that God calls perfection is relational perfection. And what that looks like is that there is blessing and no cursing, that all blesses all. No one curses anyone. Nothing curses anything in Genesis 1. That's what you see. And you see these relationships that are created. You see the relationship between the sun and the moon and the stars and humanity. They're not just put up there to be twinkly lights. This is an agrarian society. The first readers would have understood the sun and the moon and the stars to be, you know, the, the rulers over the day and the night because they depended on the day and the night to know what time to rise and what time to go to sleep before they came, got up and, and reaped their harvest or the stars to know what season is. Is it, is it, is it the time to sow or is it time to reap, right? Um, and then you had the relationship between humanity and the rest of creation. Um, we were not given, ironically, interestingly, and I'm not here to, to plug for vegetarianism, but we weren't. We were not given animals to eat in Genesis 1. We were only given vegetation, but that was our relationship with vegetation and also to cultivate it, right? To exercise dominion over it. Um, and we even had good relationship, ironically, with the, with the sea monsters. God says, even the sea monsters, that is a good thing that they are here in relationship with the rest of creation. And they were the things that scared the Hebrews the most, right? So, so in the beginning, all the relationships, the relationship between humanity and God, between men and women, we also see that in the text between us and the rest of creation, between all of creation and the way things worked, the systems that that governed life. It all blessed mm. all. 
And so that's what shalom is. It's really, in my understanding, as I've come to understand, it's it's most um, succinctly seen or encaptured in those two words, very good, tov me'od. It's radical, abundant, overflowing, forceful. You could even argue violent goodness. Right? So that's, that's, that's what... Um, that that's really so. Let me just say that that actually changed the way I saw everything, um, because when you understand that God's project, God's concern, is actually located between things, not inside the thing itself, then you understand Matthew five differently. You understand the call to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect differently. You actually see the fact that in that text, that text is directly related to. The sentence that came before it, which is a part of that whole speech that Jesus gives, where Jesus actually talks about um, the loving of the enemy, right? So love, the capacity to love and to even love your enemy. Hmm. That's perfect love. That's how the father loved perfectly. Do that and you'll be like your father in heaven, right? What he he starts out that whole passage saying, "Well, what good are you if you can only love those who are like you? Come on now, even the Gentiles can do that, which is a real slam to the Jews, right? Who who woke up every day and said, "Thank God I'm yeah. I'm not a Gentile." <laughs> so 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 the what God considers most important is the relationship between, and if God if that is what God is concerned with, if that is the measure of perfection in Genesis one then sin becomes anything that breaks any of those relationships that God declared very good in the very beginning. And therefore, my the focus of my attention in terms of what it looks, what holiness looks like, what it looks like to actually live a holy life, it's not about me becoming perfect. It's about me learning to love perfectly. You use language in your answer that um, is so needed in our society, 2018, our society today, of things like radical welcomeness and relational perfectionism and violent goodness. And yeah. um, I love this whole notion, your emphasis between, uh, and it's almost, you didn't exactly say this, but when you when you talked about that sin breaks these relationships, that sin almost kind of breaks this betweenness. Uh, and... Um, so we live in a day now yes. where all of these things are desperately needed. And I assume you, this was published in 2016. So I imagine you wrote all of this pre-2016 election. Yeah. And it seems like now a lot of the issues that you bring up, mm-hmm. you talk about the brokenness of shalom in the way we deal with one another, in the way we deal with creation, uh, in peace, in, in racial relations. So I'm wondering, as you wrote these those things now, which were needed then, can you reflect a little bit in this new political area where it seems like these things are even more broken or even more at the forefront? Yeah, it's really true. You see, I mean, honestly, it is this new understanding um, or maybe reclaimed understanding of, of, the, of the, what is the gospel um, I, I, that, that drives me into the public square. It, 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 it is what has fueled my, uh, my need to go and to show up um, where I see the relationship, especially between the systems that govern us and structures that govern us and the polis, the people. And I, you know, it did, certainly did not start. That, that's the thing. It didn't start with, uh, with, with our current administration and with the 2016 election. But boy, did we see, we are seeing everything break up right now. It's, it's almost as if the current administration mm. Their goal is to break everything, right? Because it's just so, it's just so targeted and meticulous and wow, right? So, so yes, you're right. It all becomes very clear. It's very clear now. The relationship between the systems that govern us and, and, and immigrants is broken. It has been broken. It's been broken for decades, but it is broken now. I mean, it is literally, it's blown to smithereens now. Because our current president, our current leader, the one who, um, who, who has been entrusted to serve and protect, because that's what it biblically means to exercise dominion, to serve and protect and cultivate the polis, the people um, 
who he has been entrusted with, with whom he's been entrusted um, a responsibility. But he has not actually done that. What he's done is, is he has, he has uh, been uh, loyal to his ideology, not to the image of God within our borders. And so people who bear the image of God, of God, who are, who have unauthorized immigrant status have had the image of God in them crushed through mass deportations, random pickups on the street, the, the alliance with police officers and, and ICE, which is not supposed to happen under American constitutional law. Um, you know, we are supposed to live in a society um, where the police are charged to protect every single human being within their, within their jurisdiction. And the reality is, is that they need the trust and the cooperation of everyone. And yet in, in small towns and cities across the country, this administration has created an alliance between ICE and those police. And so you have people being picked up for a traffic ticket and then deported the next day or deported or held in a detention center for months, you know, taping, taking up a cot, taping, taking up a bed that they have to fill because it's a privatized detention center that the government has promised will have 90% capacity at all times. And so somebody is taking up a, a bed mm-hmm. for three months and then deported. You see what I'm saying? So there's, there's a way that the system right now, the, the way that things are working is working actively and intentionally um, to, to tear apart the most sacred unit on earth families and also to crush the image of God. But it's not only in immigration. We see this also in, in education. Um, we see the reality that our, our education system is being gutted. There was just a report yesterday by Reuters that said, and this I blew my mind, that Title I funding, which was enacted under Johnson in order to um, in, in order to uh, level the playing field between white and black schools or and between poor and rich schools. Um, he he put that money there in order to bring black schools up to par with their with their um, uh, with their resources. But what's happened ever since then is that with every Republican president, that money has been taken away from those black schools and by by our policy has been dispersed um, into uh, communities with more resources. Until now, under Trump, Reuters reported yesterday, under Trump, that money is now going to be funneled to charter schools. Can you believe that? Title I. So, so the thing is, is that right now what we see, and we see this in every area, we see um, we see people coming after food stamps. We see our, our Congress, you know, coming after food stamps, coming after Medicare and Social Security. Even um, we see the safety net not valued because because the current administration and also our current GOP um, has a, a fundamental belief in the divine call of the of a, of a few to rule over the many. They have a fundamental belief in that. And so they, they are legislating according to that. And that belief was racialized in the United States at, at its earliest days, starting um, back in the, in the days of like 1787, when they instituted the Three-Fifths Compromise and, and did not give people of African descent a vote, um, you know, and, and also women not having a vote. And us having to fight for a century, for more than a century, in order to get the ability to vote. Um, and then for another 90 years or another 70 years uh, for that vote to be enforced through the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, so, so there's, a, there's a real struggle that is at work in our society and has been from the very beginning of the establishment of the United States. And that struggle is to determine who is divinely called and has the capacity to exercise stewardship of this land. And we answered that question in the beginning through the construct of race and also through the construct of gender, gender roles. You know, women are not meant to lead. Women are supposed to be at home taking care of the kids. Right. So it's it's those two in particular, those two constructs that 
that we decided as a, as a society, and by we, I say that generously, what I really mean is the white men who led us created a society that, that would, that would protect and secure the supremacy of white maleness. And then, you know, that's been, that's been our struggle the entire time. That's what the civil rights movement was about. That That's what the civil war was about. That's what the, the, uh, the women's suffragist movement was about. That's what the labor union movement is about. That's what mass incarceration is about. That's what the, the river of hashtags that brought us Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and Jonathan Crawford, the third, the, the third and, and, and all Sandra Bland and all the river of hashtags that came after that. till so we get now um, to, to our latest one in Sacramento. That's what this is about. It is about that struggle. And it is the struggle of those who have been assumed to not have been given that call to exercise stewardship of this land to say, I too am human. I too am made in the image of God. I too am created with the call and the divine capacity to exercise stewardship, dominion of this land in this land. We are all supposed to. That's what shalom looks like. It looks like us ruling together, us leading together in a way that blesses all, not the domination of the few over the many. You have spoken so passionately, not just right now, but also in your writings and in other forms too, about many of the issues that you've touched on. And you've, you've also, I've, I've read your, your own faith story as you have, as you've grown up. And you talked about it a little bit here where you're starting off handing out the, these tracts to individuals about their own kind of personal salvation and now speaking yeah. about uh, justice and advocacy uh, for, for all. Uh, and I'm curious if you could just, do you think that the Lisa Sharon Harper uh, of college age would have even imagined the Lisa Sharon Harper today uh, and all that, that you talk about and the faith that you have today compared mm. to that, the faith that you had then? Wow. Wow. That's a really interesting question. I mean, what would, what would Lisa Sharon Harper, you know, my freshman year in college or sophomore year in college, what would I have thought of myself today? I'm not sure I would, I'm not even, honestly, I might've called myself a heretic <laughs> back then. I mean, really, I was so thoroughly, I was so thoroughly indoctrinated and so thoroughly um, uh, like bought it all hook, line and sinker. I mean, I was, I was really, truly, I was truly a follower, like, you know, um, of, of that understanding of, of the gospel. And, and as a result, I, I, questioned whether Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian, right? Like mm. <laughs> that was me back then. Um, I questioned that. Now what's funny when you think about it is that my mom was a member of SNCC. Like my mom literally uh. helped to open the SNCC office in Philadelphia and left it when it closed, you know? Um, and it was, so she helped to open it in late 1965 and left it when it closed in 1967. And, and her job ironically was very similar to mine um, you know, at, when I was at Sojourners um, later, you know. So what's funny is that I feel like I've come back to myself. Like I've actually found in this journey, I, I've come, I've come home. Hmm. But here's the, but I haven't come home with what I would have had before. Like if I'd never, if I never had any interaction with crew or university or anything, then I would not be who I am now. Yeah. Because they gave me an understanding, a needed understanding of God's personal love for me, that of the passion and the fire that God has for me personally, that I may not have gotten, I may not have understood um, it had I not had that experience. And I am always forever grateful for that. And also, particularly InterVarsity, their, their inductive method of Bible study and manuscript style um, it really now marks the way that I approach the scripture. It is the way that I approach the scripture. And I could not have gotten that without my experience in university. So ironically, it is that, that, that time in crew and in intervarsity that actually has drove me to the mm. scriptures and helped me to find and see what I see now. Do you think, I, I appreciate you saying that because my sense, I'm making a generalization here, but I think sometimes uh, when folks who who 
speak so passionately for justice and are advocates, I wonder if sometimes if they sometimes lose that sense of God, that, as you mentioned, that God's love for me, uh, do you, do you get that sense yeah. or, or am I just uh, making that up? Well, you know, I, 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 here's the thing. I actually think that the, the arm of the church that has held that, that tension, the best has been the historic black church hmm. that in historic black church, there is no, there ain't no tension with that. Yeah. I mean, you know, grandma will tell you, God loves you. And God, grandma will also tell you, pull your pants up. <laughs> <laughs> and grandma might also tell you to go out and march. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. so there's not a, there's, there's no if, ands or buts about that. Right. Like it's, it's all, I think, honestly, I think because the historic black church in many ways in yeah, America, episode. in the American context, to Barbara Brown Taylor it's for very, time for this so close to, learn more to the context of the writers of the biblical text, or having been page. enslaved, um, having, having been oppressed, having been colonized, captured, taken to land that is not their own, told that they were enslaved in terms of the Babylonian exile, and then also, of course, the the, um, Egyptian um, enslavement for 500 years. Like that, that is the context that, that bears our scripture. That is the context that these writers were writing in. And that's actually literally what drove me to tears one day um, when I was writing the very good gospel, I was writing the first chapter I had actually written all the other chapters, but now I was going back and I was actually rewriting that first chapter, no, actually chapter two on the vision of Shalom. And so I was doing, I was going back in to do deeper study. And, and as I did the deeper study, I literally was led to weep and worship. I, I, I was sitting there with my Bible on my, on my um, lap. And then also with, um, with some reference, you know, uh, books on the side and it, it hit me, this book, this, this chapter was written by people coming out of slavery. Well, that made me read it really differently. Yeah. It made me ask, why are they writing this? What, why are they writing this? And if it is, as I've come to understand it, if it is the Babylon, the, the uh, priests exiting the Babylonian exile, 70 years of slavery in Babylon, then and they are about to enter into their own rule in the new temple. Could it be that they are writing Genesis one in order to declare how they will rule now in light of our 70 years of captivity? How now shall we rule? I believe was their question. And, and what shall be our relationship to God in that ruling? And what we see them do in Genesis one um, is through this epic poem that is amazing, right? They they establish the supreme God, the God who got them out of captivity, the God who hovers over the deep, hovers like a chicken hovers over her her eggs that are about to hatch, right? Hovers in that way over the deep, over the location of the gods of their oppressors, because the deep, the sea, is where the gods in the Babylonian understanding of God, Babylonian worldview, where the gods lived and where they warred for supremacy. And they open this text by saying the supreme God, right? Mm-hmm. The supreme God, the one who hovers over the place of the gods of the Babylonians said, let there be light. And there was, and light cut darkness. And darkness, when you translate it, actually can be translated almost every D word, destruction, desolation. Um, that I believe was their context they were living in, that they were making commentary on their experience of captivity and on, on the worldview of their oppressors in that moment. And it culminates with uh, like really with, with a really subversive text, this, this subversive declaration that God, God's self has declared that all humanity is made in the image of God. And that flies in the face of the worldview of the Babylonians and every single civilization that had that had that they had contact with up to that point. Every civilization that they had known had always declared that the image of God 
exists only in the kings and queens, not in all humanity. So for them to make that declaration is is actually revolutionary. It is a democratization of power. And that's that's the high point. That actually is the pinnacle of of this epic poem is is the giving of inherent dignity and the call to exercise dominion, stewardship of the world to all humanity. You see that that is how we are supposed to rule, understanding and recognizing and protecting and serving and cultivating that capacity in all human beings. And friend, if we did believe that, if we actually lived according to that, if as evangelicals, you know, we actually voted according to that understanding, we would never vote for somebody who would limit or crush or fail to recognize the call of every human being to exercise stewardship of the world through their their um, their 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 policy decisions like taking back money from schools that are already suffering so that you won't have books so those students won't be prepared to lead they won't be prepared to steward the world um, like taking back money from from healthcare trying to gut healthcare for the poor and for the middle class again making people vulnerable so that they will not be able to actually steward the world around them they'll be too busy trying to survive you would never vote somebody into office if you understood that the pinnacle of the doctrine of the image of God or the, the image of the doctrine of the image of God, it actually comes at the pinnacle of the creation story. And, and it is the thing that God says is very good, is radically good. That is the way we are supposed to live. That is the way we are supposed to rule that is the way we are supposed to govern in that way. You would never, ever do that. And so, so I mean, honestly, I feel like my life call now is to help as many people to grasp that as possible. Because when we grasp that, it changes everything. I'm, I'm almost moved to take up an offering after all that forceful preaching and proclamation. <laughs> <laughs> You're... One of the things I, I really enjoy <laughs> about the book is that for those who read books, um, religious books or church growth books or like that, you know that from time to time people will drop in scripture passages as a way to kind of uh, emphasize or to back up what they're saying. But you do so in a way that I think is different. It, it really speaks to mm-hmm. your passion, which also comes up in the way or comes out in the way you're speaking, but your passion and love of the scriptures and the way that you really uh, enjoy engaging it and, and reading it. And perhaps this is an answer to the next question mm-hmm. I want to ask you. What happens? How well, Part of this podcast is about how do we how do we persevere in moments when we have setbacks? How do we persevere when things are not going as we as we desire? So I'm wondering for you in, in moments of real hopelessness or in moments when you feel like there is no way forward, or maybe there's a setback or that you have failed. Mm. I'm wondering, what are the things that help you to mm-hmm. continue on the fight? And I would imagine that going back to scripture is one of those things, but what are some other ways for you oh, to, yeah. to really keep on moving ahead? Well, I mean, I think that the sustaining force um, for anyone in the struggle is, is really, it is your relationship with God. It is, it is, um, it is all those things that God has planted in our lives through, you know, the sayings of our moms and grandmoms and, and also all of the scriptures that we memorize as a child or as an, as an adult um, that, you know, they feel like, well, why am I doing this? Why am I memorizing scripture? That feels so stupid. Like, hmm. Oh, it, that's so old school, right? Like so old, but I'll tell you what, I come back to those scriptures now. Like those hmm. are the scriptures that come to mind. Um, now, when I when I am in the fire, um, and, and also quite honestly, I, I I think that I think we're all called to all of us. It's not a it's not a Christianity four hundred one or Christianity you know eight hundred um, uh, call for us to always be asking the question of how does what we are experiencing in our life um, relate to the struggles and the circumstances of those in the text. And that's what I call theologizing. 
So I'm always theologizing. I'm always putting my my experience of life in conversation with the text and the, my, and the text in conversation with my life in order to under, make sure that not actually it's not even it's not really about making sure what I believe is right. It's really not about that. It's simply allowing God to use the text to guide my life um, and to and to offer wisdom. And so I think that the text is truly sharper than a two-edged sword. It is truly living and breathing. It is not dead. It is not fable or, or, or just myth. Um, it is story. It is poetry. It is song. Um, it is not science. They didn't even have science back then. We need to give that up, right? It's not about that. It's not even history in the way that we think of it today. It's history the way we think of it today being all about, you know, proclaiming facts that happened in this way. We didn't even, nobody, nobody was interested in that in the history of the world until literally like the 1700s. It's, it's not, you know, and the Bible was written, not then, (laughs) you know what I mean? It was written in the first century AD. So when you ask the question of, of, of how to find an anchor in the text. It, it, for me, it is allowing, allowing the, the context of the text within which it was written, who is writing it? What do they say? Who would have been the first readers? How would they have heard this? Understanding that and then allowing that to speak into my life. That to actually say, well, the implications of that are then this on this situation. And this is how I apply it. This honestly is just basic Bible study mm-hmm. method that I learned in InterVarsity. And it still carries hold. I mean, it's still with me. But it's not only that. So how else am I sustained? I'm also sustained by prayer. I'm sustained by friends. Um, my bestie, my best friend in the world, Maritza Crespo up in the South, in the Bronx, not in the South Bronx, actually in Castle Hill in the Bronx, you know, her husband is actually on staff with InterVarsity, has been for forever, it seems. He's the director of Latino ministries within La Fe. And, but she has been one of my best friends because we, the, all of us, we went on that first pilgrimage together. They were with me there. And ever since then, we've been really best friends. And, and so whenever I get into any heat, whenever I come up short, when I have a question, when I don't think I'm going to make it, um, and I, there have been those times um, they come. It's like a cycle, like you go around, right? Um, uh, when it comes back around again, I'm on the phone with with Mari, with Maritza. Um, and we don't just talk when we're in trouble. We talk on a regular basis just to catch up. But we've made it, we've made prayer a regular part of what we do with each other. Um, so she has sustained me with her prayers. And not just her, but there have been a cadre of people who have been praying for me and with me. Um, really literally throughout my life, um, throughout my life since I've been a person of faith and certainly in my adult life. Um, so those, and I would just add one last piece is that as an evangelical, I did not have a value for liturgy. Um, you know, I really didn't. I, I was even taught, I don't remember who it was who taught me, but I was taught, um, you know, if somebody has to write down, has to use somebody else's prayers, it means they don't have faith of their own. <laughs> but what I've learned is that actually, the, the prayers, the songs, the scriptures that come in liturgy have been crafted over time. And they, they are the prayers of those who, who walked this road before us and have something to teach us and something for us to hold on to when we get into the thick of it. So when we went on that pilgrimage, I was first introduced to Phyllis Tickle's Divine Hours. Um, they actually, uh, you know, I'm not even sure if this was legal, but they, they photocopied like whole, a whole section of, of Phyllis Tickle's um, Divine Hours. And that was my introduction to it. And so I guess the payback is right now where <laughs> I'm letting people know about it. But, but, you know, I now own all three volumes of her Divine Hours. And, and when, you know, there was a point where I was literally for years working through every day coming to coming back to her Divine Hours and doing um, doing the prayers, saying, like reading out loud the readings from the scripture, reading out loud the hymns or singing them. And that was my anchor. And I think what I found on the pilgrimage was that when you have no words of your own, when you come to the end of yourself, which you will, 
because you are human and humans are finite. We are not God. We are not infinite. We do have an end to ourselves. And when you come to the end of yourself, oh, how good it is to have the prayers of the saints, those who've come before us, to stand on. Mm, A cloud of witnesses. Yes, Mm -hmm. that cloud of witnesses, exactly. Well, I usually end uh, conversations at asking my guests to uh, share a story of a failure of their own. And so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind Mm -hmm. doing so, whether it be a a personal failure or professional failure uh, and how you responded. Wow, that's really interesting. That's true. It's it's failing boldly. <laughs> well, I think that others honestly, there's that's a, it's a it's an interesting question because it's like okay, which failure do you choose? Because <laughs> you've had many, uh-huh. and quite honestly, the reality is is that that um, you have to fail in life. Failure is a must in life because if you don't fail, it means that you are really not you're not you don't you're not exercising faith. Hmm. Faith requires that you you go out beyond what you can control. And in that, you know, you do that enough and you will fail and then you learn and then you go out the next time and you do better. I I think, honestly, I think that, um, let's see, what's the, what's the failure? I could choose one of two that are in my mind. One is more recent. One is, one is, was a real leadership lesson for me early on. Um, I think I'll do the one that that's, that was the historic leadership lesson early on because it's solid for okay. me and, and I've done more thinking on it. Um, the, the one that's more recent, <laughs> it was like, okay, what, how did she fail more recently? Um, the more, the one that's more recent is um, it's, it is, it's still too fresh for me to put words to, Yeah. but I, I know that it's a lesson and one day I will speak on this one day. I'll definitely share that. I'll bring you back on the podcast. You can share once you've done some reflections. Please do. That'd okay. be great. So the historic <laughs> one, the historic one actually happened um, in my early years of ministry. Um, I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I think I was in my first year on, on full-time staff um, with them. And I was, I had already been a volunteer with them for three years, but now I was leading a ministry in the sunset dorm. At UCLA, I was I was the head of the ministry at Sunset. Now, the way that the UCLA ministry, I don't know if it still works this way, but the way that it used to work is that they would have leaders, you know, student leaders that who had kind of been cultivated for years and there. Now they're student leaders in their third or fourth year. And um, and they are heading up the ministry in a dorm. And the staff worker is really just there to help guide that work and, and give them counsel and um, but also to help make sure that the, that the ministry is growing. Um, and so it was my first year ever doing anything like that. And I, I thought I was doing great. I had a retreat on leadership for my leaders. You know, we were, we were rolling. We, we, we were loving each other, you know, but I didn't listen when a student who wasn't one of my leaders came up and actually complained about something. And I only remember what it was to this day. I just remember that she had come up and she was, she was really angry about something. And I just, I put it off and asked one of my you know student leaders to deal with it and they did the best they could, but it wasn't enough. And, and, you know, I think maybe the person, I don't, honestly, I don't remember now, but the person might've come back to me a second time, or certainly one of the student leaders came back to me and said, this is really an issue. We need to deal with this. And I procrastinated, which is my fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. Like that is the thing that if anything bites me in the butt in my life, it is that it's, it's the sin of procrastination. Um, and so, so this was, I procrastinated. And because I did, I wasn't on top of it. And I let what was just a spark at one point grow into a bonfire. And so one day we found out that the civil, I found out from my student leaders that there was civil war happening in the sunset dorm within InterVarsity's um, group. And, um, you know, it was huge, like just this, like everybody was like up in an uproar and you know, I mean, if they had picket signs, they might have marched. Like, you know what I mean? It was that it was that bad. And and so we, you know, I dove back in. I was like, I don't know what, what happened and just listened and listened. And I'm, I'm not honestly even sure now. I can't remember how it was resolved. I do know that we ended the year well. So it, it, it was resolved. And um, and those students actually were cared for in the midst of that. But the lesson that I learned that I now, it is now 
in me, it's like literally in my marrow, is that you never, ever let a spark become a bonfire. When you see the spark, you put that spark out. You do not let it sit and fester until it becomes a bonfire, because once it becomes a bonfire, it, it could take everything down, everything. Yeah. So you nip it when it's right there, you know, as, as a spark. That was huge. That was really, really big. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good failure stories I have. I, they're kind of, you know, I'd love to share more. <laughs> it sounds like two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, close listening is a key part of that too. Yes. So listening and discernment around to figure out where that spark is and, and making sure then that you're, that you're acting. Yeah. Right. And I think another part of it, honestly, now, now that I understand the doctrine of the image of God more, if I had that, I would have under, been able to apply it then. But I think it's understanding the inherent dignity and and infinite value of the voices of the students, all of them that I was charged with leading, that I wasn't just responsible for the, you know, six students on my leadership team. I was, I was entrusted to care for and guide and shepherd the lives and the hearts of all of the students. And I think that that was really at the heart of the disgruntledness um, of that one student is that she felt like there was some favoritism happening in that, in that dorm and that she fell out on the short end of that stick, of course. Right. So, so that's why she was raising her voice. And, and I think now when I look back at it, I think, you know, that probably was true. And I don't think I would lead in that same way now because my goal now is actually to serve, protect, and cultivate the image of God in all that I'm called to serve. Amen. Lisa Sharon Harper, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Again, Lisa's uh, book is The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And I certainly highly recommend it to folks. Thank you. Uh, and again, Lisa, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks. And if people want to follow, they can always check us, check in at lisasharonharper.com or freedomroad.us. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lisa. And that is this week's podcast. Thanks again to Lisa Sharon Harper for joining me. As she noted, you can learn all about her on her website, lisasharonharper.com, and also follow her on Twitter at Lisa S. Harper. To learn more about my book and the ministry I'm a part of, you can go to christiancoon.com. You would do me a huge favor if you would go on to iTunes and rate this podcast so that others can hear these great stories of failure, perseverance, and resilience. Thanks again for listening.